Welcome to John Longwell Media. Creative multimedia, including music, inspirational messages, and audio prose. Today's message is entitled, Void Not, recorded on April 11th, 2021, at Revive Church in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, where John serves as a teaching pastor. I pray you will be blessed by the message as you listen. Here now is John Longwell. Amen. That was awesome worship, guys. Thank you so much. You know, good worship is like a good meat tenderizer. It's supposed to, supposed to soften that toughness of our hide that gets just, you know, broken down throughout the week and everything. And God says, okay, now that you're all tendered up, now my word is just going to come in and, and give you those things that you need. So let's just go ahead and um, open in a word of prayer and invite the Holy Spirit to come. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would just have your freedom in this place today to move in our hearts, to apply your word. Father God, we don't know what's ahead and we were barely prepared for the last year, Father God, but through your grace and mercy, you, you continue to just show yourself faithful. And so we just ask for, that we would be open to receive that which you have for us today. In Jesus' name. All right. Well, before I get started, um, I, got a, I got a check this week. And that's always nice when you get a check, especially when you don't have to send a check. And it was from Berkshire Hathaway. Anybody ever heard of the Oracle of Omaha? Warren Buffett? Okay, yeah, that's right. Um, I, I used to work for a nonprofit that was a financial ministry, and so I, it helped me get out of debt, helped other people get out of debt, things like that. And um, so I really got a heart for, for finances in and, and, and that way. And uh, a couple of years ago, I had a chance to go to Omaha and go to the Berkshire Hathaway um, headquarters. It was really cool. It was very, very humble. It wasn't really anything overly blown, and which was very kind of in keeping with who Warren Buffett is as a guy. Um, some fun facts about him. He's the sixth richest person worth $99.6 billion. Um, he owns 6% of Coca-Cola with just over 400 million shares of their stock. And um, when he was a young man, he used to collect bottle caps. Back in the day, the vending machines weren't cans or, the, or the, the plastic bottles. They were these glass bottles. And so you would put your probably 10 cents in at that time and you pull out your bottle. Well, the, the opener was right on the machine. And so you would have to kind of do one of these and then the, the cap would fall on the ground. And so he would go and he would collect the caps, you know, just something that a little boy would do. And as he's collecting them, he's noticing that there's a certain number of caps that are more than the other ones, and one of them was Coke. Well, back in the day, he's 91 years old. He was born in 1930. And so back in the day, they didn't have 24-hour convenience stores. And so if you wanted to go to the market, you should go during business hours because everything pretty much closed. So Warren had this idea. He said, well, in the hot, muggy summer nights in Omaha, um, maybe people would like a Coke. And so he would go to door, he would go door to door selling the Cokes that were iced. And of course, people were like, well, hey, this is so convenient. And he would make a little bit of money, you know, as a little kid. So he had this little side project. And so now in his headquarters, he's got a little framed uh, picture that has all these little Coke bottle caps in it because that was one of his first ways of, of making money. So I thought that was kind of neat. Um, We'll get into how much this check is worth in just a little bit. Um, and also it gives me an opportunity to enjoy my Coke. <laughs> if you guys want to follow along, 
The notes are in the digital um, thing with the worship. Just so you know, we're kind of transitioning a little bit more digital. So every Sunday, if you go to the link on the little website there, you'll find the lyrics to all of the worship songs so you can follow along. And then also, I like to put my notes in there too. So um, I thought it was very interesting. Last Sunday, Mark preached on Easter. And as I woke up Easter morning, I thought to myself, I was like, man, this is like Super Bowl Sunday for Christians. And then Mark mentioned that. I was like, all right, great minds think alike. And one of the things that's interesting about the NFL is that when the season first starts, it's anybody's game, unless you're the Cleveland Browns, who haven't won in over 75 years. Um, they might as well be from Nazareth. In fact, it reminded me of that verse in John, John 1, 45 through 46, that says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Nathan, and Nathan answered and said, See, I told you, he's, a, he's even wearing a Cleveland Browns jersey. That was just added. But that's really kind of the way that they thought about people from Nazareth. You know, they're just like, ooh, wow, that's stinky town. It's like maybe that's the part of, of town where the, the city dump was, and so you just didn't want to go anywhere near that, that part of town. And so we know that we're not to despise those small beginnings or the things that other people might not put any bit of substance to. Those are the very kind of things that God will use. And so as I looked at um, Easter being like Super Bowl Sunday, when you wake up on that Sunday morning, if it's Super Bowl Sunday, you know that someone's going to win. They'll go into triple overtime because you can't have a tie in a Super Bowl. It doesn't work that way. Well, in the same way, Easter, someone is going to triumph, and we know exactly who that was. It was Jesus who triumphed over sin and death. You see, that day changed everything. It is the dividing line between what I want to call the before and the after. And that's what we're going to look at today, is we're going to look at the before, which is before Easter, before the resurrection, and we're going to look at the after. Now, for the early Jews, before, their atonement was based upon a system of sacrifices involving animals and blood. After salvation, though, the finished work of Christ's death and resurrection was their means to atonement. For us, the before simply might be we're, in, we're born into that state of sin, and we're unaware that we need God until the after occurs when the Holy Spirit's work of awakening us to our need and bringing us to the Lord through that salvation process. That becomes our personal Easter morning. So I kind of want to take you guys on a little trail. Let's go back about 2,000 or so years ago, and it's a week later, just like it is right now. The resurrection took place one week ago. It was a global event that they worshipped. They were sitting around in a room, and they were still, if you've ever had somebody close to you that passed away, you know that after the fact, you're in a little bit of shock. I, my mom passed away in 2016, and it, it took me a couple of years of cycling through before I was like, wow, I don't have the luxury of just picking up the phone and calling my mom. It would just, it kind of begins to settle in, but sometimes very slowly. And so they're still kind of in this little bit of a shock wave. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, we know the story that Mary comes in and, and she's ecstatic that she's seen Jesus. And so they run and they, and they figure it all out and they confirm that indeed she wasn't just hysterical, but this was an actual truth that Jesus arose from the dead. They saw him die in a way that a common criminal would die on that cross until he was laid to rest in that tomb. And so they had now this fact that Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive. But what if they continue to just follow that same pattern of what they, were, they had been brought up to be a good Jew? Well, I need to continue to follow the law. I need to continue to keep all of those precepts of the law. I probably should still raise an animal so that on the Day of Atonement, I can have that as my sacrifice. If they were to continue on that same path, that would just be insane. And it would treat Christ's death as a non-event. Our scripture that we'll be looking to today is Galatians chapter 2, verses 21. And I'm going to read several different versions because each of them kind of catches a little nuance that, I, that we'll be discussing today. The first one, it says, I do not ignore the grace of God because if we become righteous through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what if we ourselves remained in the before? Let's say like we've already had that salvation experience, which I hope all of you have had an opportunity to ask Jesus into your heart to make him the Lord of your life. But what if you continue to live as though it were the before and that significant event did not take place for you, even though in all reality you know who Jesus is and he lives in your heart? In Galatians chapter 2, 21, in another version, it says, I do not reject God's gracious gift, for if the way in which one attains righteousness is through legalism, then the Messiah's death was pointless. And so I want to look at four different the before kind of uh, examples. And the first one we're going to look at is, is called legalism. And legalism basically just means that you're very devout and you're very strict about observing the rights and the rituals of religion. It almost becomes a checklist for you. And that can be very, very cold. Have you ever been given a lift, list of to-do items? Unless there are things that you really enjoy doing. I love to vacuum. I don't know what it is. I, I, I vacuumed as a kid. We used actually used to have shad rug when I was a kid and I had to rake it. We, we had these little plastic rakes and I would go through and I would get so angry because my sister would come trekking through and she would make all of my, my carpet flat. I was like, man, it took me two and a half minutes to rake that. So anyway, childhood memories. So, but if you're given a list of things that you don't want to do, it's very cold, it's very impersonal, it becomes something that there's no joy, there's no delight in. And for people that, that live their lives under legalism, that's exactly what their relationship with God is. It is nothing more than a checklist of to-do of to items. And we ask, well, why would they do that? It's because they believe they have to earn their salvation. In Galatians 5, 1 through 3, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, which was a former requirement of the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So basically what Paul is saying, he goes, okay, if this is your methodology to get into heaven, 
then guess what? You have to complete the entire law perfectly without ever failing. You have to get a hundred on every exam. You cannot miss a single point. And then in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. And we know that we're imperfect. We know that we don't have that ability to walk it out. And that's why Christ did something for us that we could never do on our own behalf, which is die for our sins. Because the, the judgment for sin is death. And so he took that death for all of us. So dedication and attendance is fine, and we should exemplify those things that we should do, but we should do them with joy. They should come as an outflow of the living relationship that we have with Christ. Because it says, faith without works is dead. Works is just another word for doing those things that we should be doing as a Christian. But they should come out of that relationship that we have with Christ, not out of some sense of obligation that if we don't do this and we don't do enough of them, then we're not going to be saved. Because then it puts the burden upon us instead of acknowledging the burden that Christ took upon himself for us. So the second way that we can live in the before is by being ruled by guilt and shame. And simply what this is, is somebody that cannot accept that they are forgiven. They are always living under that shadow of shame. And one of the things that I think, it may not necessarily be a shame of things that they had done in the past, although that very well could be. Maybe it's something that, they, that they've done and they're like, man, God could never forgive me of that. And so you almost raise your sin to a level that it's greater than the, the grace and the forgiveness that was purchased for us. Or we might even live in fear of the sins that we're going to commit. Because we're all vulnerable in certain areas. And so we're always kind of like, oh man, I know that in that, when I'm down, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach for that or I'm gonna do that. And so we need to put certain things in place in our life. We need to maybe have someone that can hold us accountable. We need to, to be aware of those places where we're weak, where we're vulnerable. We need to avoid, avoid those areas of temptation. But most of all, we need to acknowledge of the strength and the power of the forgiveness of our God. You never surprise him. You never catch him unaware. And no matter how many times you struggle and you stumble, his grace, his mercy is there to catch you, to pick you up, and to continue on that journey. Now then there's the other extreme where we're like, well, that's great. I guess if, uh, if I have this blank check and I can just do what I want, then... It's almost like you're trying to outrun the grace of God. And, and in Romans, it tells us, should we therefore continue to sin that grace will abound? He's basically saying, should I just see how much I can sin to see how much of God's grace there is? And he says, certainly not. That, that's ludicrous. It's that balance between understanding that we're not to live recklessly, but we're to fall into the reckless grace of God that loves us, that receives us, and that already knows the path that we're going to take. And he's already provided for us. Isn't it amazing? It's like just when you think it's the worst, then God comes along and he brings something to you that you've needed, whether it's a friend or just that that time of peace and solace. You've been in the storm for so long. And then finally you're like, oh man, I needed this break. God, only you know how much I needed this time. So the third way that we... um, disregard Christ's death 
is by comparing ourselves to others. And a lot of us kind of live that way. Um, we, uh, we, we kind of think of ourselves, well, I'm not as bad as some. I'm probably better than most. I've never been, you know, in jail. I've never gotten pulled over for a DUI. You know, you start comparing all these little lists because we all have our lists of what's good and what's really bad. You know, the things that are really bad for us, people that have been doing worse, they're like, oh, wow, that's, that's not even on the starting list of where I began to be bad. And so it's this sliding scale of comparison. And we kind of think to ourselves, I'll get into heaven. God probably grades on a curve. I'll be fine. You know, getting into heaven is not like surviving a bear attack by being the fastest one in the group when you're being chased by a bear. It doesn't work that way. Romans 3.23 says, If you want to compare yourselves to someone, compare yourselves to this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the standard. There is nothing in us but wickedness. And so the only thing that we can compare ourselves to Christ, and at that level, the least common denominator says we need a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now the last thing, um, a, a way in which we remain in the before, is by simply ignoring our need for salvation. William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, said the dangers confronting Christians today are these. Religion without the Holy Spirit... Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, politics without God, and heaven without hell. See, basically, the world in which we live today has no absolutes. Define your own absolutes. Figure out your own way. We're encouraged to be independent and self-reliant. And we're basically taught that all of us are just fine. You're just fine. You're good. It's all good. You're good. You walk around that way, and you kind of begin to believe that. You're like, well... Maybe I'm not as bad as I, as I thought I was. See, stick, stick away from church for a while. You're going to think that you're really okay. And then you go back in there and you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> Man, I need, to, I need to work on some stuff. And that's not why you come to church to feel bad. You come to church to allow the Holy Spirit to shine the light of truth into your heart. And your heart should really just bear witness to that. And you're like, yep, that's exactly right. And we go off course so subtly that you don't even realize you're like 90 degrees in the, in the other direction. And then you go, whoa, how did I get, I, the trees were like on the side of the road. The road was like straight ahead and now I'm in the bushes and the trees. This is so weird. Revelation chapter 3 verses 15 through 17 says, he's speaking to the church of Laodicea. And this is to believers, by the way. This isn't just the world. He's saying, I know your works not your heart. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we are all, un- we are all like an unclean thing and our righteousness are like filthy rags. It is a good thing to question your salvation from time to time. I'm not to say that you, that you live in a place of doubt. When I was in my probably late 20s, I attended a, a youth conference with my kids up in Colorado Springs. And there was a, he's a nationally known Christian speaker. His name is John Bevere. And he spoke. And he, he dissected this one fallacy that a lot of people believe, 
which is that, well, you know, God knows my heart. It'll be okay because God knows my heart. It's kind of like saying, okay, well, I got, a, I got in a, a fight with my, with my good friend, but it's okay, it'll, it'll, it'll all go away because they know my heart. But you see, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say God's going to judge you because he knows your heart. What does he say here? He says, I know your works. I know the things that you do. I see your fruit. And other people will see your fruit. And once again, this is not to say that we should be so focused on our works, but we should be focused upon the substance which is in our heart, which then is the outflow, which then is the source of all of those works. If there's not a little bit of evidence to convict you of being a, a, a Christian, then you may never ever be convicted of being one. And when I was listening to that sermon by John Bevere, I began to go through and question some of the things that I believed as a Christian, going, am I just kind of sitting back and just dismissing some of the areas of struggle? Because God knows my heart. He knows that deep down, I really love him and I really want to serve him, even though in these areas, there's no reflection of that at all. And so it really just, it allowed me to take a closer look at some of those areas and say, you know what? I need to bring them under the obedience of Christ Jesus. And that's all that Christ is doing for us. He's, is he's saying, if it's not under my control, then I can't bless it. It's just going to be out there and you're just going to get whatever result you get. Because if it's not submitted to me, then I don't have any power to direct it, to mold it, to grow it, to revive it, to rehabilitate it from whatever things that the world has done to corrupt it and to degrade it. And so as we look at our salvation, let me just ask you two questions. Do you still seek repentance? Is that still a mark of your walk with Christ? Are you still convicted of the things that you struggle? Or have you just struggled with them for so long that you're like, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm just, I'm done. I don't even want to deal with that. That's fine if you give that over to Christ and you see him begin to move and grow in those areas. The second question I want to ask is, are you still utterly dependent upon Christ? Or have you begun to just rest on the things that you can do to get by in your relationships? in your finances, in your, in your job, in, in your purpose for living. See, that's really the level that most Americans live on. You know, there's other countries where where you find that next meal is the day's goal. Eat 200 miles to the south, families, kids, go digging through the debris in the trash fields for food to find things to sell. That is their world. That is their goal. They're not sitting there going, oh man, when can I buy the next video game? Or when's the next Netflix streaming show going to come out because I've watched everything. We live on such a different plane of reality that it gets so corrupted on what's important. And I know that's a heavy message and I, and I don't mean to, to put that on you as though that's a bad thing. Because to us who have been given much, we can do a lot. We can affect a lot. We have been given such abilities and talents and resources. And maybe this is just an opportunity for us to go, God, I lay it before you. How would be the best way that you would have me use those for your kingdom, for your glory? So, as I conclude... Um, there was a meeting in 2010, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, 
I think Oprah was there as well. And these billionaires, they set a challenge to one another to give away 50% of their wealth before they passed away. $50 billion. Some of these companies are making so much money. You look at Amazon and Jeff Bezos, and they, they post in a quarter like, oh yeah, he made $18 billion last quarter. That's crazy when you think about how much money. And sometimes when they're giving that money away, they can't even keep up with how much money they're making to give it away. So at the beginning of this year, um, you know, we always have that temptation or that opportunity to make those New Year's resolutions. I was actually, in my heart, I was like, no, I don't want to make any resolutions this year. I want to make a decision. So I made a couple of decisions. One of this, the, the decisions was that I wasn't going to play the lottery anymore. And, and I didn't play it feverishly. I would play a couple bucks a week. But even if you add that up over a year, that's a couple hundred dollars that probably could have gone somewhere else. And in the back of my mind, my philosophy was, well, if you don't play, you can't win, right? We kind of justify, it's like, well, man, it's like $300 million. If I can't play, I can't win. But the odds are so astronomical. It's like 824 million to one. They say that you have a better odds of getting struck by lightning twice while in the middle of a train crash. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy when you look at those odds. But what actually made me stop was God just kind of just in his gentle, loving way, he said, you know what? Putting your hope in this leaves me no place to bless you. Because this is where your hope is. What is faith? Faith is a substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And I, I would sometimes go to bed at night spending that money. I'm going to buy this house on the beach and get me a couple Lamborghinis. Well, maybe three or four. Ten car garage. That's what I need. That's what I need. Ten car garage. All the cars, you know, and you can go crazy with that. And yet a lot of us live in that place because there's no other like quick pass out of the life that we're living. And it's like, man, I bet you we could go outside and we could pull 10 people and you ask them one question. What would you do if you won the lottery? And they would be able to give you without reservation. Sometimes you can't interview people. Well, what are your thoughts on politics? I don't get it. What would you do if you won the lottery? Well, let me tell you. Let's have some coffee. I'll, I'll sit down. And I'll tell you the whole story. So I was pleasantly surprised this week until it's ready to cash. I got a check from Berkshire Hathaway for $10 million. <laughs> and I thought about that. And I was like, wow, this money could significantly change some things <laughs> in my life. I could probably pay off my mortgage. I could probably set enough money aside to retire now. However, if I choose to live in the, in the before, it would be like writing void across this $10 million check. And it becomes worth nothing. I can't cash it. It has no significance in my life. There's another scripture in Galatians 2.21. It says, I do not make void the grace of God. For if righteousness is through the law, then Christ died for naught, for nothing. If the Easter message has ceased to impact us, the reality that Jesus didn't just die, but he rose again, and everything changed then he died for nothing. 
There's no significance for us. We void the grace of God, and Christ's death and resurrection are of no value. As we conclude, we'll look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We live in the after by embracing the ministry of reconciliation. And what that simply means is, you have received this amazing change. Now go out and see if you can also share that message with others, that message of change, that message of hope. And we're to consider those that we deem the most unworthy. Remember when we talked about that place called Nazareth, where no one ever thought anything good could come out of that place? They just automatically had written it off that, well, if you're from Nazareth, I don't, I don't really put much of an estimation of your value. And there are those places that we look in our own spheres of influence, and maybe there's someone that lives in that sphere, and we're like, you've never really given them a second thought. Or maybe there are people that rub you the wrong way. Maybe they're the very targets of salvation that God would have for you to target. Sometimes you have to pray just to be around these people. So why not pray them into the kingdom? You're already praying. You're like, oh, God, please just give me grace. It's just five-minute meeting. There was a, there's a lady at my work that a lot of people struggle to be around just because of certain mannerisms, certain ways that, that she speaks. And I don't know what it was. I'm a, I'm a Midwestern boy. I come from Iowa. I don't know if it's just that I have that gift of gab. I'm still to this day amazed at my mom. We would go into a grocery store. She would come and visit. She would strike up a conversation with strangers. We couldn't even get out of the checkout aisle because she'd be sitting there. I mean, she's already into the third generation of grandkids talking about that. Oh, well, that's just great. And I'm like, oh, come on, mom. We just came to buy milk. And so I don't know if, if I always just have that way of a little bit of that, my mom and me. But um, I was able to just kind of strike up my own quirky kind of way of relating to this person. And my first couple of years evaluations, they were like, you are able to navigate the most difficult of circumstances and people with great diplomacy. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's just Jesus coming out in me, looking at those people that maybe other people don't like, can't stand. But I'm like, you know what, God, you made them too. And if we would develop that kind of an attitude for others, maybe God would allow us to share forth that ministry of reconciliation. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, let us not remain in the before, where we retain our useless practices of works, living under guilt and shame, comparing ourselves to others, or simply being self-reliant. Let us not make void your grace and render Christ's death and resurrection meaningless. Instead, may we continue to be impacted more and more each day by the power of Christ's life in us. Help us to embrace your ministry of reconciliation and be open to whomever you may bring to us. Lord God, we just thank you. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. We hope you've enjoyed this inspirational message. Please email questions, comments, and booking information for John to mail at johnlongwell.com. To see the full range of creative works, 
including books, inspirational messages, music, art, and web development content, please log on to www.johnlongwell.com. Thank you for listening, and may God's blessings be yours in abundance.